I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, the tube versus trabeculectomy, the TVT study. So I think we're at a point now where we have, you know, two very good glaucoma operations in popular use today. And there are certain populations of patients where I think it's unclear what is really a better operation for our patient. Should I be implanting a drainage device or should I be doing a trabeculectomy with mitomycin C? First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Stephen Getty declares speaking fees for Merck and Pfizer. You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to As Seen From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. Today, we speak with Stephen Getty. He's a principal investigator in the new tube versus trabeculectomy study. The study attempts to provide guidance for choosing the right glaucoma procedure for the patient who has already undergone cataract surgery or who has had a previous trabeculectomy. Dr. Getty's recent paper in the AJO describes the TVT's design and study population. Steve, can you tell me why the study is needed? I guess to just kind of speak generally, just looking at uh, glaucoma surgery over the past several decades, there's definitely been an, an evolution. For example, in the late 1960s, when uh, Cairns introduced a guarded filtration procedure, trabeculectomy, um, that procedure rapidly uh, replaced full thickness procedures, which was the glaucoma surgical procedure of choice at the time, because it very quickly became apparent that you had a procedure that was equally efficacious but much safer, so a lower complication rate. So that was a major advance in the late 1960s. And then I guess in the late 1980s or so, antimetabolites were introduced uh, as adjuncts to filtering surgery, 5-FU and mitomycin, and they've really become standard and the surgical management of glaucoma. And they were definitively shown to, to really improve the success rate of that operation. But what became apparent with time is that in addition to improving success, they also appeared to increase complication rates like late onset, bleb infections, bleb leaks, uh, hypotony maculopathy, and other concerns began to grow within the ophthalmic community, and so much so that people have wondered whether there might be alternative surgical approaches that may be appropriate for our, for our glaucoma patients. And probably the leading candidate out there right now is tube shunt surgery, you know, also known as aqueous shunts or glaucoma drainage implants or glaucoma drainage devices. Uh, you know, these are a type of operation, as you know, many implants are are commercially available right now, but they all have a similar design consisting of a tube that's inserted into the eye and shunts fluid to a, a little plate that is attached to the sclera in the equatorial region of the globe and all. We have a wealth of experience that has developed over the past several decades with this type of surgery as well. And it's an excellent procedure, offers 
good results. Uh, certainly has less problems with uh, late onset infections and things like that that we see with trabeculectomy, but they have their own group of complications that are associated with their use, like double vision and late erosions of the tube and, and whatnot. So I think we're at a point now where we have you know, two very good glaucoma operations in popular use today, namely trabeculectomies with an adjunctive antimetabolite and glaucoma drainage devices. And there are certain populations of patients where I think it's unclear to surgeons, at least many surgeons, and myself included, what is really a better operation for our patients? Should I be implanting a, a, a drainage device or should I be doing a trabeculectomy with mitomycin C? And there, there's really a, a wealth of um, medical literature on each procedure individually. Um, most of the studies are retrospective in nature, but we have a good sense of what success rates we can expect with these, each of these procedures and what types of complications that we get. But there's really very little in the ophthalmic literature um, comparing these two procedures kind of head-to-head, and that's really what the TVT or tube versus trabeculectomy study is all about. It's a group of investigators kind of came together and, and tried to identify a population of patients where it was unclear to us what was a better procedure and randomize them to receive either one or the other procedure. It's a multi-center randomized clinical trial, and patients are randomized to receive either a Bearvelt implant, which was the glaucoma drainage device that we selected for this study versus the trabeculectomy with mitomycin C. We decided to restrict our study population to patients that had undergone prior ocular surgery, including prior cataract surgery with an intraocular lens implantation, uh, a failed trabeculectomy, or a combination of both those procedures. Right now, what happens when a patient who has undergone cataract surgery or has a failed tribe needs better control of his intraocular pressure? I think a person that's pseudophagic and or has failed filtering surgery, many surgeons would choose to implant a glaucoma drainage device in, in that population of patients, and other surgeons would elect to do a trabeculectomy with mitomycin C. We actually have a fairly good idea of what glaucoma surgeons are doing, actually based on a survey that was done initially by Phil Chen, who was um, a glaucoma fellow with me at Baskin Palmer many, many years ago. And he and Rich Parrish actually did a survey of the members of the American Glaucoma Society, I think in 1995, and actually presented 10 different clinical scenarios and asked them, um, what type of operation would you do for this type of patient, and, and meaning either a trabeculectomy without an antimetabolite, a trabeculectomy with 5-a-few, trabeculectomy with mitomycin C, placing a glaucoma drainage implant, or doing a cyclodestructive procedure. And it was interesting. About, oh, between 90 and 95% of patients in the mid-1990s would elect to do a trabeculectomy uh, with an antimetabolite, either 5-a-few or mitomycin C, in patients that had undergone prior cataract surgery or trabeculectomy. That study was actually repeated about seven years later um, in 2002 by Rich Parrish. 
and he redistributed the same survey to the members, again, of the American Glaucoma Society. And it was very interesting to see how practice patterns had shifted over the subsequent seven years or so. And in those same scenarios, the percentage of people that were electing to place a glaucoma drainage implant instead of do a trabeculectomy uh, with an anti-metabolite was still a, a min minority of responders, but instead of something like 5%, it was more like 20 to 25%. So clearly, glaucoma surgeons, some would do an anti-metabolite trabeculectomy and some would do a glaucoma drainage implant that a anti-metabolite trabeculectomy still seems to be the more popular operation, at least among glaucoma surgeons, um, and pseudophagic guys and eyes that have had uh, failed filters. But the practice pattern is certainly shifting, and there seems to be an increasing use of glaucoma drainage implants in, in clinical practice. Are post-TRAB patients treated any differently from pseudophagic patients? And what I'm thinking of now is... If a patient has undergone clear cornea cataract surgery um, where the conjunctiva hasn't really been touched, uh, is, is that patient managed differently in terms of the surgical control of his intraocular pressure from a patient who, who has had, had a TRAB and has had it fail? Um, well, I, I think the, the point that you bring up, Josh, is an excellent one, and in uh, kind of stepping away from the, the TVT study and um, that survey that I just alluded to, and trying to make a decision about what's an appropriate surgical approach in, in a patient, for example, that's had prior cataract surgery, a major determinant is the status of the conjunctiva. And, and a patient that has got extensive scarring of the conjunctiva and that's quite common for patients that had cataract surgery in the extra capsular cataract era and all. I really think a, tr a trabeculectomy is not the procedure of choice, rather a glaucoma drainage implant is. And in fact, in the TVT study, one of the exclusion criteria for our study was patients that had extensive conjunctival scarring where the surgeon felt that it would not be feasible or possible to, do, to, to dissect the conjunctival flap to do a trabeculectomy. In that case, we, would, we didn't feel comfortable randomizing that patient to have a 50% chance of getting a trabeculectomy because every investigator agreed that a glaucoma drainage implant was the, was the procedure of choice. Now, I will tell you that there are a number of patients in the TVT study that had only clear cornea a cataract surgery. So you're, you're, these are eyes that have, in essence, virgin conjunctiva that has never been touched. And the investigators felt comfortable still randomizing those patients to either a tube shunt or a trabeculectomy. And we are going to do some sub-analysis of that group, and it'll be interesting to look at because these eyes, I guess, are in, in many ways kind of untouched, very similar to primary filtering surgery or primary tube shunt surgery in that the conjunctiva has not been, been violated or touched. Steve, what are the relative advantages of trabeculectomy and of tube surgery? I think the, the major advantage of uh, trabeculectomy, I think the glaucoma surgeons, myself included, have the impression that we can achieve a lower intraocular pressure with a trabeculectomy. And in my experience, um, 
not uncommonly, uh, trabeculectomy alone can control pressure at a very good level. It's um, an operation where you can actually get people's uh, pressure into the high single digits oftentimes and frequently without a need for supplemental medical therapy. With tube shunts, that is generally not possible. Um, I don't think you, you get as low an intraocular pressure and generally overall uh, those patients tend to require some supplemental medical therapy to really achieve a, a, a pressure in the target range that you're, you're aiming for. Probably the biggest disadvantage with trabeculectomy are complications, um, and many of these complications can occur even months or years after the original surgery. And and bleb leaks, bleb infections, um, people can get bleb dysesthesia or, or discomfort related to have a, having a filtering bleb um, at the limbus. Those are not problems that you, that you really see with tube shunt surgery. Now, they do have their own problems, you know, diplopia and tube erosion, as I mentioned earlier, but, um, but infection doesn't seem to be nearly the, the problem, uh, as big a problem with tube shunt surgery as we see with, with trabeculectomy. We have uh, the impression that tube shunts actually may last a bit longer as well. One of the problems with filtering surgery is that there is some loss of effect that occurs over time, so failure can occur years after an initially successful trabeculectomy. This can happen with tube shunt surgery as well, but but there is kind of a sense that tube shunts may last longer, may be less um, prone to, to late failures compared with trabeculectomy. Steve, can I get you to describe the design of the study? Sure. Again, it's a multi-center randomized clinical trial. So we have about 17 clinical centers participating with about 30 investigators at those clinical centers, mostly academic centers across the United States although we have um, more fields in, in London participating in the study as well. In order to be eligible for the study, patients, uh, as I mentioned, must have had prior ocular surgery, including either prior cataract surgery, failed filtering surgery, or a combination of both, kind of a, com- a combined procedure. And also have to be between the ages of 18 and 85 years. We wanted to make sure patients were old enough to um, give their own informed consent but um, we wanted to minimize the number of losses to follow up due to death and debilitating illness, and that's why we put an upper age limit on it. And their interactive pressures had to be between 18 and 40. We did put an upper pressure cutoff, mainly because, um, as, you, as you know, teraculectomies do provide an immediate produ- reduction in pressure, but drainage implants, at least non-valve drainage implants, as was used in this study, really take several weeks before they become fully functional, before the tube opens up, and, and that's in order to allow some encapsulation of the plate to occur with the drainage implant. So the investigators felt uncomfortable randomizing patients with very, very high pressures in case they ended up into the drainage implant group. There were a variety of patients that we excluded from this study, including obviously patients that were unwilling to, to give consent or unwilling to give consent or unwilling to accept this idea of randomization determining what type of operation that they were going to receive. 
we excluded pregnant and, and uh, nursing females. Um, I guess one of the concerns is uh, with use of an adjunctive antimetabolite, at least a 50% chance of that, the, the effect on a developing fetus and its potential of getting in the breast milk is, was of concern. Excluded eyes that had no light perception vision, obviously um, those are not operative uh, candidate type eyes. And we also excluded a variety of secondary glaucomas like neovascular glaucoma, uveitic glaucoma, uh, glaucoma that was associated with ice syndrome or epithelial fibrous downgrowth, mainly because it was a consensus of the investigators that, that really tube shunt surgery was, was a preferred surgical approach in, in, in that population of patients. Patients that were aphakic or had vitreous in the anterior chamber were excluded. Those patients can be problematic for either procedure, um, either trabeculectomy or tube shunt. You know, vitreous prolapse can, can block filtration with either the procedure, and we didn't want to have those types of complicated patients. We excluded patients that had severe posterior blepharitis and um, that were unwilling to discontinue contact lens use. And that was mainly because of concern should those types of patients get randomized to a trabeculectomy, there's certainly a higher risk of infection uh, that has been reported with contact lens use in uh, following filtering surgery and also with severe posterior blepharitis. And we really felt that a tube shunt was a better operation in that, in that group. I had mentioned that, that patients that had scarring of the conjunctiva where the surgeon felt that a trabeculectomy really was not going to be a feasible operation, we excluded those patients, and, and that's an obvious indication for putting in a drainage implant. Eyes that had had prior scleral buckling procedures, psychodestructive procedures, or had silicone oil in the eye were excluded. And lastly, if the patient needed any kind of concurrent surgery with their glaucoma surgery, for example, cataract extraction or penetrating keratoplasty, we excluded those. Or if there was an anticipated need that they were going to need further surgery in the future. So, for example, uh, sometimes when a person has glaucoma and corneal edema, or, um, we might choose to do a glaucoma procedure, either a trabeculectomy or a tube shunt, with anticipation that once we get the glaucoma to control, we might do a, a second procedure like a penetrating keratoplasty at a later time. And we purposely excluded those patients from the study. So that was the group of patients that we were looking at. There's certainly a lot of exclusion criteria that I talked about, but really we're, we're talking about the bread and butter type of patient that oftentimes requires glaucoma surgical intervention, you know, the pseudophagic eyes, the eyes that have failed a filtering operation or a combined procedure. Steve, you, you've you've just answered what I was going to ask next, which is which is basically this: that this study posits that either procedure is acceptable to the enrolled patients in this clinical setting. And what what I was I was going to ask, what you've basically just answered now, is: are there subpopulations for whom one of these procedures is clearly more advantageous than than the other? Let me let me ask you now: how many patients are enrolled in this study? We we've enrolled a a total of 212 patients. So that's, I think, 107 patients in the tube group and 105 patients in the trabeculectomy group, if I recall correctly. So a bit over 100 patients in each treatment group. You know, we came up with that number based on sample size calculations and trying to um, 
generate adequate power to distinguish um, treatment groups based on anticipated differences in intraocular pressure levels and also anticipated uh, differences in, in complication rates. And that's going to be a major, those are two major outcome measures in the study, looking at intraocular pressure levels in each group and also complication rates. One of the parameters that you're looking at in addition to intraocular pressure and visual acuity is diplopia, uh, which is a complication that's associated with tube surgery. Uh, why do some patients get diplopic? You know, um, it's a great question, Josh, and, and diplopia is, is one of the complications that has been well described after glaucoma drainage implant surgery. It can occur by a number of different mechanisms with the Bearbelt implant, which is one type of glaucoma drainage device that's commercially available, and in fact, the one that we selected to use in, in this particular study. The design of that implant is such that it, it's usually placed under the adjacent rectus muscles, usually the superior rectus and lateral rectus muscles, because the implant usually is placed in the supratemporal quadrant. As an aside, in the TVT study, in all patients, it was actually placed in that particular quadrant. And just because of uh, fibrosis that can occur around the rectus muscles, diplopia can result. As a result of, of having a, a bleb and just a mass effect of a bleb located in the equatorial region of the globe, um, it can have some effect of, of producing diplopia. And this is something that um, has been certainly recognized as a complication of drainage implant surgery. But its actual incidence has been difficult to really know because most of the studies of drainage implants are retrospective in nature. And this is really the first study that is actually looking at the incidence of diplopia prospectively. In other words, every patient enrolled in the TVT study received a baseline motility exam. We measured, you know, phorias, tropias, and primary gaze, and in all fields of gaze at distance and near. And those measurements are being repeated at one year and at five year, um, five years postoperatively, and also in any patient that complains of double vision after the six-month exam. Again, we're more interested in permanent uh, restrictive strabismus related to, to surgical intervention. It's not uncommon at all for patients to have some transient diplopia after glaucoma drainage implant surgery, but that usually will resolve, and we weren't so much interested in that, but more addressing the issue of permanent uh, strabismus following glaucoma drainage implant surgery. And I think, you know, further down the road, we're going to have a very good handle on how common or uncommon this, this problem is. Steve, one of the questions that I always have with multi-center surgical trials is how you standardize surgery, what, what you have, have done in, in, the, in the context of, of the study to make sure that a trabeculectomy at Baskin-Palmer is similar to a trabeculectomy at Moorfields? Great question, Josh. And, and indeed, when you're doing a surgical a trial, you, you really need to standardize the procedures that are under study but at the same time, you want to allow enough flexibility for the individual surgeon to do the procedure in a way that he or she is, is proficient and feels comfortable. For example, in the, in the tube group, so patients that are randomized to the tube group, all of those patients underwent placement of a 350 Beervelt 
glaucoma implant. That implant was placed in the supratemporal quadrant. Um, there were certain requirements. For example, the flow had to be completely restricted through the tube at the time of implantation, although the surgeon could accomplish that in a variety of ways. And we also required that the tube be inserted into the anterior chamber and all. However, the surgeon had some flexibility as to whether he or she would use a limbus-based or a fornix-based flap. They could use whatever patch graft material, for example, they like pericardium, sclera, cornea, whatnot. The procedure was really standardized, but it did allow some flexibility in the surgical approach um, based on the surgeon's standard procedure and, and um, comfort level. Yeah, the trabeculectomy had to be done superiorly. We standardized the dosage of, of mitomycin at 0.4 milligrams per milliliter uh, for four minutes. But again, the shape of the flap, how many sutures were placed in the flap, um, whether a limbus or fornix-based flap was used was left to the discretion of the surgeon. So there was some standardization of the procedure, uh, but, but allowed some flexibility for the surgeon to, to do the procedure in a way that he or she felt comfortable. And, and the investigators in this study are really all um, very gifted glaucoma surgeons, gifted in performing both surgical procedures. Um, they're basically at academic institutions throughout the, the U.S. and uh, certainly uh, very uh, reputable uh, glaucoma surgeons that are, uh, are certainly well-known in the glaucoma community. So, Steve, what do you do in your own practice when these sorts of patients come in? Up until April of last year, I enrolled them in, in this study, the TVT study, and I, and I felt comfortable doing that, quite honestly, because I didn't know, and my heart of hearts, I did not know which was a better surgical procedure for my patients. And um, I'll be frank with you, Josh, that there were some people, some investigators, very good glaucoma surgeons that uh, I invited to participate in this study, and there was one or two that actually felt uncomfortable with certain groups of patients, actually randomizing them to, randomly assigning them to treatment. In other words, that surgeon felt he knew what was a better operation, for example, in patients that had uh, only prior cataract surgery. So, and I certainly respect that decision that they didn't want to participate because they felt that they knew what was a better procedure. The rest of us, the 30 investigators in this study, myself included, I don't know what is a better procedure for my patients. Is it a trabeculectomy with mitomycin C or is it a Bearveld implant? At least in the types of patients that I described to you that were eligible for this study. I'll be honest with you, Josh, yet the, I've been actually unmasked to the results. Um, as an investigator in the study, I was, I was completely masked to the, to the results uh, up until relatively recently, um, we're kind of pulling together the one-year data and plan to publish that in the upcoming months. Probably it'll be in print towards the end of the uh, this year. Let me tell you this. I, uh, these results have kind of influenced my choice of what procedure that I'm now performing. And I hate to be vague, but, but I can't really tell you what the results are. So if I told you what I'm doing now, it would probably uh, be a pretty good indicator what the, what the one-year results of the study are at least.
Steve, that's perfectly fine as as long as as you promise that when the data is finally published, that we get to hear from you again. Sure, I'll, I'll I'll definitely look forward to that, Josh. I certainly would. Steve Getty, thank you very much. Well, great, Josh. It's been a real pleasure. Let me tell you, a real pleasure. Stephen Getty is associate professor of ophthalmology and residency director at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine in Miami, Florida. His paper, The Tube versus Trabeculectomy Study. Design and Baseline Characteristics of Study Patients appears in the August 2005 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. And now, a question from our listener response line. Hello, my name is Jeff Sheridan. I'm a general ophthalmologist in Central Florida. My question is for Dr. Elias Trabulsi regarding the complement factor H. Dr. Trabulsi, Where does this factor fit into clinical practice? Is there a commercially available test for the complement factor H variant? In my practice, I can envision a use for something such as this in deciding how closely to follow a middle-aged person with minimal macular drusen and for counseling these people on their risks for macular degeneration. Thank you for your discussion. And thank you, Josh, for this interesting and entertaining forum. And Dr. Trabulsi responds. I thank Dr. Sherbin for his important question. Uh, Certainly, it is on every ophthalmologist's and physician's mind to find uh, the test that will predict either the development of the disease or the development of complications from a disease process. Complement factor H variant has been shown to be associated with age-related macular degeneration. To my knowledge, the test is not clinically available yet. Unfortunately, we do not have any long-term studies on the predictive value of being positive for the complement factor H variant as far as the development of either wet or dry macular degeneration. The studies today have only shown uh, an association between this variant and macular degeneration. So as far as we can tell at the present time, there is no clinical uh, usefulness for the test. I am certain that studies are underway. In a few years, we will be able to have better data that would assist us in determining the predictive value of this test uh, with respect to the development of complication, uh, complications of macular degeneration in patients either who are asymptomatic with drusen or who have a strong family history of the disease. Again, thank you, Dr. Sherbin, for this uh, interesting question, and uh, thank you, Dr. Young, for uh, organizing this forum. I've been asked by several listeners to create a mailing list to distribute information about upcoming programs. To keep with the podcast's interactive theme, I've set up a discussion group. By joining the group, you will get occasional emails from me describing upcoming programs, topics I'm working on, and guests I have lined up for interviews. You'll also be able to suggest papers and guests for future podcasts, and you'll be able to discuss the podcasts with other listeners. To get enrolled, click on the Contact Us button on asseenfromhere.com and indicate that you want to be enrolled in the mailing list in the message body. 
I will, of course, not send spam. Colon, close parentheses, Josh. Ask questions of Dr. Getty or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.